Okay, so if you've been following along, we are, we are in the middle of our 1 Corinthians series, Prodigal Church. We're walking through 1 Corinthians verse by verse, and if you've been tracking along with us, um, you know uh, that today we get to 1 Corinthians 7, and we are going to tackle the entire chapter. Um, that is 40 verses. Normally, I have about 40 minutes. Okay, 45 minutes. Um, it's supposed to be 40. And some of you are like, that's not going to work. And you're right. It's not going to, you know, it's going to be fine. I promise. Um, we're either going to go really long or we'll cut some out or it'll happen just like I planned it. First service, it worked. So here's hoping. Uh, but we're going to cover all 40 verses today, uh, some of them more thoroughly than others, but you are going to need your Bible in front of you. So um, if you've got one, open it up, 1 Corinthians 7. If you don't have one, you can look in the, in the chair in front of you, and there should be one underneath there. If not, one in the chair next to you. But 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to hit all 40 of these verses. And what we'll notice as we get into this is... Paul is shifting the tone of the letter at this point. Remember, that's what 1 Corinthians is. It's a letter that Paul writes to the church in Corinth. It's the church that he started. It's the church that he founded on a missionary journey. He went to this city that, that, that um, had very few Christians, if any. And he came and he preached the gospel. And people got saved. And then he helped them form a church. And he stayed in the city of Corinth for a year and a half, preaching and teaching and establishing the church. And then, after the year and a half, he continued on his missionary journey to go to another city to preach the gospel and establish a church. And the church in Corinth began. And it began with, with what Paul calls baby Christians. And that's true for all of us. When we first become Christians... We walk through the door of salvation, right? We, we know that we're sinners. We know that Jesus Christ is the one and only Son of God, that he died and that he resurrected from the dead. We confess our sins, we repent from our sin, and we put our faith in Christ for our salvation. We become Christians. We become born-again believers. That's the way it happens. But when that happens, we don't know anything yet. We don't know what it means to be Christian. We don't know how to live the Christian life. We are babies. We're spiritual Christian infants. And then what we're supposed to do is we are supposed to grow up. We learn more about faith. We learn what it means to practice faith. We learn what it means to honor God with our behavior, what it means to pursue holiness, and we mature into spiritual adults. But you'll remember the church in Corinth, part of their problem was they walked through the door of salvation. They're real Christians, but they never tried to grow. They just stayed as babies. And so Paul has spent the first chunk of this letter correcting them admonishing them, encouraging them to fix their mistakes. Remember, they've been so divisive that the church is so badly divided over leadership and preferences. And Paul steps in and says, you need to knock that off. Under Christ, we're all united. And so stop being divisive. They were using the name of Paul to cause more problems. And he said, hey, you leave me out of it. I don't want anything to do with any of that. 
They were being immoral, sexually immoral. So much so that, that somebody in the church was having a relationship with his stepmother. And the church was applauding it, not correcting it. And so Paul has been giving them all of these corrections and admonishments, exhorting them to grow in holiness. But now starting in chapter 7, the tone is going to shift. And over the next probably seven or eight chapters, what Paul's doing instead of correcting, although there'll still be some tone of correction, what he's going to be doing is he's going to be answering their questions. What happened is they didn't know what it was to live a Christian life. And so they had a lot of questions for their spiritual father. And, and they wrote him a letter and they've sent it to him. And in the letter, they asked some questions about what does it mean to live in a Christian way? And so what Paul's done is he's responding to their questions. And that response starts in chapter 7. And it's all about marriage. Because they want to know what does it mean to be married in a Christian way? What does that look like? Because, and this is true in our culture too, we know... Um, that marriage is hard. Anybody here know that marriage is hard? Don't raise your hand. It's a trap. (laughs) I mean, if you're here alone, you can raise your hand. But otherwise, don't do it. Marriage is hard. Being married is hard. Um, It's hard in our culture where 40% of marriages end in divorce. And that's actually better than it used to be. But 40% of our marriages end in divorce. And you know what? Divorce is not more common in our culture than it was in that one. Actually, divorce ran rampant in the Roman Empire, in Greece especially. And what you would have is it would not be uncommon for somebody that was married to to be married up to 10 times. Some of you, I, I get it. You're like, man, once is enough. They do it like 10 times. But here's the deal. They would get married and divorced and married and divorced so often because of something that Paul's already written to them about. And that was the difference between human wisdom and godly wisdom. See, human wisdom says that love should feel good. Human wisdom says that love is tingly. That love gives you butterflies. Human wisdom tells you that love is emotive only, right? It's this feeling and this tingly thing that you get in your feet and it, it just kind of takes over your body and, and, and your heart palpitates and you just, you just can't hold it in anymore and you just, I'm in love, I'm in love and I don't care who knows, I just want everybody to know about it. That's love. Are you thinking of the movie? Lisa's back there chuckling. That's, that's I was too, right? Will Ferrell in Elf, he walks in, he's like, I'm in love, I'm in, doesn't matter. That is, the, that is the kind of thing that's going to keep us here late today, people. And it's all on Martyr because she's the one. Anyway, but yeah, no, 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 this is, this is the thing we get, right? This is the love at first sight, the, the, the we, we are so emotionally invested in love, like from across the room, we've never met, we've never smoked, and I don't know anything about you, but I know I love you because you give me the feeling, right? That's human wisdom, And the problem with love and human wisdom is that when the feeling is gone, 
we assume that the love is gone. And from a strictly human wisdom standpoint, why would I stay married to a, a, a person where there's no love? Where the feeling isn't there? So I let it go and I go find it again. Or better yet, even if I feel it a little bit, but all of a sudden I feel it more with that person over there, well, then I'm going to leave this one and I'm going to go to this one. That's human wisdom when it comes to love. That's what the church in Corinth is used to. Right? Now listen, I love Carrie. Sometimes I don't feel it. And she's gone today. So I can say that. Although she's probably watching online. And this is, see, this is what I can say. You know you feel the same way. So it's okay. If she types amen, then we'll know that she's tracking. If she doesn't, then that's on her for not watching. Um, but, but here's the thing, right? Every married couple knows this feeling. Some days the feeling is so strong. Some days it's not as strong. Right? Worldly wisdom says if we have too many days where the feeling isn't strong, then it's broken and we throw it away and we go looking for something else. Godly wisdom says love is more than. Yes, it does include feeling, but it's more than feeling. And we have to act accordingly. And so the the church in Corinth is asking Paul these questions about how they should process love and uh, and how they should process marriage and and how they should process sex within marriage and all of these other things. And um, and contextually, there's something you need to know about marriages in, in Rome, specifically in Greece. There are four kinds of marriages. And, and the reason this matters is because all of um, these kinds of marriages would have been represented in the church. All four of these types of marriage would have been representative in the church. People would have been married this way. The first was called tent marriage. It was marriage between two slaves. Now, when we think slaves, it's, it's different than our cultural context of slavery. We think slaves, it's a bond servant. These are people that owed a debt that they couldn't pay. And so until they could pay it off, basically they were in servitude, right? But they had no rights, right? And, and so you might have two bond servants, two slaves who decided they were in love and wanted to marry and they could get married and they were married, but they had no legal rights, the person that owned their debt could separate them. The person that owned their debt could sell the debt of one of them to another person. And they would be separated. Right? So we had people, the church in Corinth, Paul's addressing marriage, and some of them are married in this way. Right? They're married, but they have no legal rights. Others were what we would call common law marriages. Because in Rome, if you lived together for a year, you were married. It was part of the, their, um, their procedure that if you acted like you were married, you were married. Um, third is a parent-directed married, where a parent would choose whether the daughter wanted it or not to give her daughter away in marriage to basically the highest bidder. Right? Like if I decided that, that I wanted Riley to get married, I would say, okay, Riley is available for marriage. Make me an offer. And somebody that I thought was nice enough, that gave me enough horses, I would go ahead and 
give her away to that person and they would be married. Whether she wanted it or not, they would find themselves married. When Riley got engaged to Isaiah, we joked with him that that, that, was, that I, I expected a goat in payment. He gave me a stuffed animal, which I guess was kind of fun. Carrie said she wanted a Lamborg, or, uh, she wanted a Cadillac, and he gave her a little model of a car. So we think he's going to be okay. We like him. But here's the deal. The last kind of marriage is where two people would choose to be married and legally had their marriage recognized. So the reason this matters, again, is because the Christian church, the church in Corinth, would have had all of these types of marriage. And they're asking, what do we do? And Paul's going to give advice. He's going to give advice to three different groups of people in this chapter. There it is. Christians who are married to other Christians, even if they didn't choose their spouse, even if their father chose their spouse for them, he's giving advice to Christians who are married to Christians. He's going to give advice to Christians who are married to non-Christians. No matter what the circumstances was, he's going to give them advice. And he's also going to give advice to Christians who are unmarried. And so that's, the, that's the, the whole crux of this chapter is, is uh, things for these three folks. So we're going to walk along here. If you've got your Bible in front of you, the first few verses are going to be on the screen, but we're going to get to a point where I'm just going to um, go over them with you in your Bible. So you might want to have it ready. Judah, I got nothing. You want to go ahead? All right. So now concerning the matters, this is Paul writing to the church, concerning the matters about which you wrote. Right? And so Paul is here. He's saying, like, look, you wrote about this. I'm responding. Now, you'll notice the quotations here. Right? This means that this was a specific thing they said in the letter they wrote to him. Paul is not saying this like it's a biblical fact. But they said in the letter they wrote, hey, it is good for a man not to have sex with a woman. And specifically here, the context is marriage. So what they wrote is some people in the church were teaching that it is good for married people not to have sex. For married people to be celibate in their marriage. Okay, so sometimes people get confused because they read that there and they read it like, hey, Paul wrote this. It's good for people not to have sex. So um, in marriage, we just won't do it. But then that's missing the point because he very quickly says here, but that's not true. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So Paul says, look, here's what you asked me. You said, is, it, is this true? Because this is what some of the teachers are saying. It's good for married people to not have sex. Paul says, no, that's not true. Actually, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have, that word for have there is, is intercourse, each man should have a relationship with his wife. Each wife should have a sexual relationship with her husband. That's just the way it goes. Right? And he, he basically puts that back on this idea of temptation. Now, here's what I want us to be clear about. Paul isn't painting a low view of marriage. Sometimes when people read this, they think, oh, well, the only reason to get married then is so that you can have sex so that you can avoid being sexually immoral. That's not at all what Paul is saying. Some of you are chuckling back there. Are you counting? How many am I at? 
Some of you are like, how many times will he say sex? A lot. In the first, like, seven verses. After that, we're over it. But, here's the point. Paul is not having a low view of marriage. Paul is answering a practical question about marriage. Paul has a very high view of marriage. But in this instance, he's suggesting one of the reasons why it's important for married couples to engage in this relationship. It's not the only important reason. We look um, in Genesis... Um, and and here's, here's what, what is recorded for us. At last the man exclaimed, This one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. And the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Like, like part of the reason that we have marriage and sex within marriage is not just so that we can keep from sinning. Part of the reason is because in marriage, sex is something that actually binds us together. As much as anything else in marriage, sex will bind us together with our spouse. This is by God's design. It's two becoming one. This is his very good and intentional plan. Right? And on top of that, marriage is for so much more than that. As the scriptures say, this is what Paul writes in Ephesians 5. A man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. It's a great mystery. And then he says, but let me tell you what the mystery is. It's an illustration of the way that Christ and the church are one. Paul has such a high view of marriage. He wants you to understand that in marriage, you're actually a metaphor You're a picture of the way that Christ and the church are united. That's the importance of your marriage. Your marriage is of such high value that it paints this grand picture of Christ and the church. So again, I say this. This is Paul saying, look, so, so each person in the marriage has to do their part because it's a picture of Christ and the church. So I say again, each man must love his wife as he loves himself. He tells us earlier in chapter 5, men, you've got to love your wife the way that Christ loves the church. And that was in its entirety, in its totality. It's another conversation with, with Isaiah, the, the prospective son-in-law, when, when he called to, you know, I guess ask for a blessing, but more or less just say, hey, are you guys on board with this or whatever it was that, that he was planning to propose? And, and it was simply a matter of, oh, yeah, I mean... Yes, we like you. I mean, you gave me a goat. I mean, it was stuffed, but whatever. But do you understand this? Do you understand, right, that, that your job is, is to love my daughter when she becomes your wife the way that Christ loves the church? And Christ loved the church to the point where he sacrificed, poured himself out, and died on a cross for it. That's the call as husbands. We are to love our wives that way. It is a tall order. Right? And wives must respect and love their husbands, submitting to their authority as of the Lord. And so this is this symbiotic relationship where where love and respect cause a marriage to thrive. Now, Paul has a high view of marriage, and and, and in this question they're saying, so hey, in a marriage, shouldn't 
because we're Christians now, shouldn't we refrain from sex? Paul says, no, absolutely not. In fact, you should engage, right? We keep going. Here's what he says. Here's his explanation of that. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Okay, if you don't know the word conjugal there, figure it out from context, right? The husband should give to his wife um, her conjugal rights, meeting her sexual needs, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Don't just stop there. Please keep reading. Likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come back together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And so one of the things that we understand here, right, is that, that what Paul is saying is that sex inside of a marriage is expected to be normative. It should be the normal thing that happens. It shouldn't be a rarity. In fact, the only time that sex shouldn't be happening within a marriage is when both people have agreed that for a certain amount of time, they are going to withhold and they are going to fast and they are going to pray for a specific issue. But that shouldn't even linger too long. And he says, because when sex isn't happening in a marriage, right, that that gives Satan a way to kind of worm his way in and cause difficulties. And that's in a couple of ways. Some people, when you read that, you automatically assume, well, when if Satan can worm his way in, then maybe that's by tempting the other one. Um, you know, somebody that, that, that wants to have more of a sexual relationship, maybe it's something that happens where it, they're tempted to go step outside of the marriage and meet that need. And that's possible. But I think part of what happens here too, and this is important to understand, is that sex, when it's not happening regularly in the marriage, we're missing out on one of the things that God gives us that's supposed to bind us together with our spouse. Right? That husband-wife relationship is different than a friend relationship. And there's something about that good gift that God gives us within marriage that when it's not happening, our marriage relationship isn't exactly what God would intend it to be. It's not binding us together the way that he would intend. And in that, Satan can worm his way in. And start to divide the marriage instead of bind it together. So Paul says, no, no, no. Sex should be a regular part of your relationship. Now there's a couple things. That people always have questions about this. So there, there's a couple of points I want to make. Go ahead, Judah. Okay, a couple of things here. Um, so, so we don't make any mistakes. In marriage... For both parties, our bodies don't belong to us, but each other. So what I've had is, and I've done a lot of marital counseling with a lot of folks, and, and there are times that somebody will use one of these verses and say, well, see, um, I want to do this more often, and you don't get to say no, because your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to me. Well, that's just, that's only, that's foolish, it's only reading half of the text, right? If we think about this in my own marriage, I could say to Carrie, hey, look, your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to me, and I think we should be doing this right now. Well, it would be just as easy for her to say, okay, that's cool, but you know what? Your body doesn't belong to you either. It belongs to me, and I don't. 
And so this isn't meant to say that, that we can order each other to do what we want in marriage. Once we start trying to act like that, we've already lost. The relationship is broken and there's a problem. So this isn't to say that we get to tell the other person what to do, right? Two, we are to submit to one another in our marriage. Paul says that back in that chapter five of Ephesians, he he starts that whole thing off by going, look, out of love, submit to one another. Husbands, submit to your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. It's this mutual relationship. So what that means is that I am not to look out for my own needs first, but I am to make a conscious, purposeful decision that was going to be personal and purposeful together. You caught that, didn't you? I was like, I can't really just skate by that. I have to address it. Um, That's what it was. Um, A conscious, personal, purposeful decision to say, you know what? I am going to set my needs aside and I'm going to put Carrie's needs as primary. That makes sense. And some of you would be like, well, then Matt, you're going to get steamrolled. Your needs will never be met. No, 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 because here's the thing. In a healthy marriage, here's what happens. Carrie makes the same conscious, personal, purposeful decision to set her needs aside and put my needs first. So my needs are being championed. Her needs are being championed. But we don't have to do it for ourselves. We do it for one another. That's the way God intended this to work. But Paul makes it so clear. Your bodies don't belong to you. You are to submit to one another. And sex is expected to be a regular occurrence in marriage. It's the normal. It's not to be reserved for special occasions. It's not meant to be. And I know this sounds so stupid, but listen, I've done a lot of counseling for a lot of years. Um, for those of you that don't know, I was a counselor before I was a pastor, and, and, and this is not an uncommon thing. It's not a reward. Right? That, that's not what it's designed to be. It's supposed to be a regular part of the marital relationship. And here's the thing that we need to know about. In marriage where there is sexual dysfunction. And what I mean by that is that it's not happening the way that God has intended it to happen. There are times that that's because of other factors, right? There might be a physical issue. There might be a past trauma issue. There might be an illness issue. There might be some reasons that cause difficulties that that then things have to be evaluated differently. But more often than not, this is the truth. More often than not, where there is sexual dysfunction in a marriage, it's stemming, it's the result of relational dysfunction in a marriage. When we aren't relationally healthy as husband and wife, that can make sex difficult. And so sometimes if you find yourself in a position where it's hard to be obedient to God in this way, perhaps it's time to take a step back and figure out what it means to strengthen the relationship of the marriage so that this becomes easier. Counseling, 
You can come talk to me. You, you know, if not, I'll make you a referral. I'll help you get an appointment somewhere else um, for marriage counseling, good Christian counseling. But these are things that we have to do, right? But I will say this. Nothing makes me, I said this in first service, and I thought maybe that was too harsh. I'm like, no, it, it was legitimate. Um, this is the only time in counseling I ever want to punch somebody. I've never done it. But I've thought about it in my head. Like, like in my head, I've gotten up and punched somebody. In reality, I just take a sip of my coffee. <laughs> a lack of sex in marriage is never, ever, an excuse for sexually immoral behavior. You can't pin that on anybody. If you are stepping out in your marriage or you are engaged in pornography or other things that God very clearly says no to, and and you're confronted with that, your reasoning can't be, well, you know, my husband wasn't meeting my needs. My wife wasn't meeting my needs, so I just had to go out and take care of it elsewhere. That's never acceptable. Right? We're clear about that. Okay. We keep going. Judah, we keep going. Because I can't. We get back to 1 Corinthians 7. Some of you are like 40 verses. I know. It'll be okay. Now, as a concession, Paul says, he says this about what's moving forward. Not what's backward. What's backward, he has said, and um, it just is what it is. He says, though, as a concession, I do think, like, I can't command you in this, but I do think that I wish some of you were more like I am. He says, and I'm single. Paul's single. He's probably widowed. We don't know for sure, but he's definitely single. And he says, I wish, you know, it's not a command, but man, I, I wish that more of you were single, right? But I can't tell you to be single because being single is not something you just decide to do. Being single is actually a gift from God. He says, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Get this, singleness, when you crave it, when you choose it, is a gift from God. There are plenty of people who do not have the gift of singleness that find themselves being single. So I want to be clear about that. You, you, but when you have the gift of being single, it's when you have made a decision and it is easy within you that you don't want to marry. You have no desire for marriage. Can I be really honest with you? That is something that we tend to in our culture and especially in the church, we tend to look down on that. We, we tend to assume that if you don't want to get married, that you're not doing it right. But if God has given you the gift of singleness, you have no desire to be married. Paul says that's a good thing. We're not mad at that. Can everybody pick that? Should everybody pick that? No. But some of you, he says, I wish some of you were like me. I wish that some of you were single. Now, he's going to be clear here in a minute. The reason some of us might choose to be single is so that we can dedicate ourselves more fully to serving the Lord. Right? So if you're like, I want to be single because I want to stay home and play video games every day and never have to answer to anybody... That's not really what Paul's talking about. But he's saying, I wish some of you were like me. And and let's think about what Paul did. Paul decided to get up one day and he left. And he stopped in Corinth and he preached the gospel and it worked. And he said, you know what, I guess I'll just stay here for a year and a half. And then when he was done staying there for a year and a half, he's like, I guess I'll go over to Ephesus. 
And I'll preach the gospel there and stay there for a little while. Paul says, I wish more of you were like me and you had no attachments except for to the Lord so that you could dedicate yourselves more fully. He said, but you can't just decide that. That is a gift that God gives you. And so if you are here today and you are single and you have no desire in your heart to be married, it's possible that's a gift that God's giving you. Jesus talks about that in Matthew 19. He says, he just got done teaching about divorce and he was telling his disciples because they were asking, hey, can people just get divorced? And he's like, no, knock that off. You get divorced when somebody is sexually unfaithful. That is grounds for divorce. It's not a command to be divorced. You can try to reconcile, but you are free to divorce when somebody is sexually immoral, when they, when they have an affair. And the disciples are like, that's the only time you can get divorced? That's a really hard teaching. Then they say this, it's probably better just not to get married then. And Jesus says, maybe. But not everyone can accept that. Only those who God helps. And when he talks about being a eunuch there, he's not talking about castration. He's talking about um, being celibate. He says some are born celibate. Some have been made celibate by others, right? Like, like, like <laughs> just the relationship is broken. And some choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone who accepts that accept it. Right? If you're given the gift of singleness, then be single for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And he finishes up his advice to married people. He says, to the married folks, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. Right? He's just telling you what Jesus has already said. The wife should not separate from her husband. Right? So, track this now. He says, look, sex inside of marriage is good. In fact, it's, it's expected to be the norm because it strengthens the marriage, right? It's good for the marriage. He says, and, and, and in the marriage, it's necessary that it be strengthened because it's permanent. I give this charge, man. The, the wife should not separate from her husband. The husband should not separate from her wife, from his wife. Now, here's why that matters. This is all kinds of marriages, Marriages where you feel like you've fallen out of love. Marriages where maybe you didn't ever feel like you were in love in the first place. Remember, he, he's talking to people who they may have been told by their father, you go marry him. No questions asked. And Paul says, look, I, this is what God says. This is what Jesus has said. Matthew 19, you are not to separate from your spouse. And he says this, if you already are separate from your spouse, then you're to either reconcile or stay single. Those are the teachings that Jesus gives. Like, like if you have left your spouse and then you've become a Christian, right? Then you're in this position where you either go fix your marriage, you go reconcile, or... You stay single. That's a hard teaching. But it's, it, it's what we have in front of us. So wives and husbands should not get divorced. If a divorce does happen, and it's not for biblical grounds of sexual unfaithfulness or infidelity, then you know what? You either reconcile or you stay single. It's one of the things we have to be careful with. I, 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 get, I, I get a question a lot sometimes about whether or not I'll do a wedding. 
Um, and I always have to tread really carefully. Because it is rare these days to do a wedding uh, of people that have never been in a marriage before. And so I, it, there's always a trick here. There's always a balance of making sure that a divorce was a biblical thing. Not just a, oh, we fell out of love thing. And if it was a biblical thing, then yes, I can feel free to move forward. But if not, then my advice is, look, either stay single or be reconciled. And I can say with Paul, that's not my advice, but that's from Jesus. Keep going. And then he shifts gears. And and, and instead of talking to Christians married to Christians, he starts talking about Christians married to non-Christians. I want to pause here for a second because you've heard me say before that that's a bad idea. Christians marrying non-Christians is a bad idea. And so Paul's not talking about, hey, for you Christians that were already Christians and decided to marry somebody that was a non-Christian, here's my advice to you. What Paul's giving here is advice that says, um, hey, you were both unchristians. You were married. I preached the gospel. You became a Christian, but your spouse didn't. What do we do then? What happens if you're married to somebody and then you become a Christian and they decide not to? You have to understand that when you, when you really get Christianity in all of its glory, that can jack up a relationship, something fierce. The only way that doesn't jack up a relationship is if you have a wrong understanding of what being a Jesus follower is. If you, te- if you treat Jesus like an add-on, then it's simple. But if you treat Jesus as foundational, then it gets really complicated. For example, when Carrie and I started dating, I mean, first of all, you know this. You know that I love the Cubs. If you've been here more than one Sunday, you know that I love the Cubs. Like, I mean, I love the Cubs. I also love Jesus. I mean, I love Jesus. You must realize that I love them differently. Right? One is an add-on. One is foundational. When Carrie and I were dating, it was February. There's no baseball in February. So it turns out I could spend all of my time with her that I wasn't at work. And I did. Then we rolled around to April. It's baseball season. I like to watch baseball games. They're about three hours a pop. And I would often watch them with my dad and my brother, and so it would be a thing, right? And so it'd be like, Carrie, I'm not working, but no, we're not going to hang out because I'm going to go watch the game. We were about a week, two weeks into the season, and I remember having a conversation with her on the phone, and she's like, man, I looked at a schedule. There's like 160 of these. This goes all the way through September. And, And the implication was, I'm not doing this. I'm not losing to baseball. So my decision was, do I let that go in favor of this? And I did. My love for the Cubs weakened significantly because my love for Carrie was bigger. And it was an add-on, so it was easy to do. And so the next thing you know, I was watching maybe one game a week. Sometimes I didn't even know when they were playing. If I treat Jesus the same way, as an add-on. 
And I'm married to somebody who says, you know what? I'm not sure I'm down with that. I don't want to go to church. I don't like it when you, I certainly don't want you to tithe. I don't want you to be generous. I don't want you to pour yourself out for the sake of the gospel. I don't want that. I didn't sign up for that. If Jesus is an add-on, then you know what? Okay, I'll weaken my love for that a little bit. Basically, I'll figure out what's the lowest common denominator that I can do that will make you happy. This is why we do not, listen to me, you do not marry somebody who is not a believer. You do not become unequally yoked. You don't do this on purpose. Because Jesus is foundational, he is not an add-on. Some of you are married, and you're like, man, I didn't know that when I got married. I get it, right? It is what it is. Nobody's mad at you. Some of you are not married. You need to understand this full well. Do not get married with somebody who does not have the same foundational belief and understanding as you do. Don't do it. It's problematic. But if you were both unchristians and one of you becomes a Christian... Then it gets a little weird. Paul says this, that's not reason to get a divorce. Saying, well, they don't believe what I believe is not reason to get a divorce. He says, if they will keep living with you. Now, the implication here is that you are all in for Jesus. And if you are all in for Jesus and they will agree to keep living with you, even though you've become this weird Jesus freak, okay, then we'll keep living together. We'll keep being married. We'll keep being united this way. But, right, for the unbelieving husband, uh, I'm sorry, we'll go, go back to 13. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Um, I got too far ahead of myself. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of the wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. We'll get to the not in a second. Let me just focus on, on 14. I got ahead of myself trying to get done. I don't want you to be mad at me. Um, what he's talking about there with holy is not saved. He is not suggesting that when you as a Christian are married to an unchristian, that they are saved. What he's saying is that you, um, when you are married, that that is God's design. So made holy here is, the, is that what we would say is set apart. The marriage, the, the family is set apart when you continue to be married. That's God's design. That's the way he wants it, right? You can't just by being married to an unbeliever, you can't just save them. They're not just going to go to heaven because you happen to marry them. You don't have that much power. Doesn't work that way, okay? Keep going here in, in 15 though. And this is where he says, um, if the unbelieving partner separates, just let him go, right? Because if what they say is, if you're going to act like that, if you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to want to be sold out to Jesus, if you're going to want to put Jesus first and foremost in your life, if you're going to want to follow Jesus, if you're going to want to be generous, and you're going to want to pour yourself out for the sake of people in the body, and you're going to be that way, then I'm going to leave you. Basically, the threat of you need to knock that off. You need to quit doing that. If they do that, if they say, no, I, I'm not having anything to do with this, then just let them go. Paul says, in such cases, the brother or sister, the husband or the wife, they're not enslaved, right? God has called you to live in peace, so just let them go. And sometimes we might feel guilty there thinking, well, I'm the only Christian they know. It's my job to save them. Paul says, how do you know if you could have ever saved them? That's not your job. How do you know, husband, um, 
you could save your wife? Or how do you know wife if you could save your husband? That, that's not what you're supposed to do. That, that's the Holy Spirit's job. So you don't have to feel guilty about that. If they want to go, let them go. Here's the catch. Your Christianity should be so foundational to the way you live. See, this is the thing. I know there are some people here who are believers and their spouse is not. Paul is saying that your Christianity should be so foundational to the way you live that it's very likely that it will rock your marriage to the core. It's very likely when you live a sold-out life for God that your unbelieving spouse may say, I don't know if I want to be a part of this. If they will be a part of it, awesome, stay married. If they won't be a part of it and they tell you, stop following Jesus or I'm out of here, you say, well, I can't stop following Jesus. I don't want you to go, but I have to keep following Jesus. And if they leave, then you let them go. That's the way your Jesus experience should be. It should be so foundational to the way you live your life that it is almost impossible for you to be a believer, your spouse to not be a believer, and have it be no big deal. If you're a believer, your spouse isn't, and it's no big deal, then you're treating Jesus like an add-on, not like he's foundational. We keep going here. I'm just going to read you this next part out of the text. You can follow along. We're starting in 17. It says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, to which God has called you. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his calling already circumcised? Well, then let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Then let him not seek circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when you were called? No. Don't stress about that. Yes, get free if you can get free, if you have the opportunity, right? But don't stress about it. Everyone was called to in the Lord as a bondservant. Everyone is free in the Lord. Likewise, he who is free was called into bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain there with God. This is the point that he's making in this. He's like, stop stressing about it. You guys don't, we have grown up as Christians or have, maybe that's not true. Maybe we've become Christians later in life, but we've grown up knowing what Christians are. In this country, we know what Christians are. In Corinth, they had no context for this. The rest of the world looked at Christianity like it was crazy. Only in the church could you have free man and slave worshiping together of equal status in the church. Were they equal outside of the church? Absolutely not. No way. In the church, they were of equal status. Men and women, they were not equal in society. Inside the church, they were of equal status different races outside of the church, they weren't equal. Inside the church, they were. So Paul's point is this. Don't stress about what you were, right? Don't try to change all of that to fit in better in the church. Just be where God has put you. Were you Jew, right? Were you a Jew? Were you circumcised? Were you Jewish? Then just be Jewish. You have to quit being Jewish now that you're in the church. Were you 
a Gentile? Were you not Jewish? Well, don't come into the church thinking, I better become Jewish so the church will accept me. It's like, it has nothing to do with that. Just be who you are. Stop stressing about it. And in terms of marriage, he says this. Concerning the betrothed, right? I have no command from the Lord, but I, I give my judgment is, is, is one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. He says, I think that in view of the present distress, it's probably good to remain as you are. Right? He's talking about like, like if you're engaged but not married, betrothed. Like you're promised but you're, you're not married. He's like, I, I think it's probably wise for you just to stay unmarried because of the, the distress in the world. Right? Are you bound to a wife though? Well, then stay married. Are you free from a wife? Then don't worry about getting married. Like he's saying like, like you're okay. Be where you were when you became a Christian. Were you single? Then it's okay to be single. Were you married? Then stay married. And he, I, I love the way he says this. He says, this is not from God. He's like, I'm not giving you God's words. I'm giving you my advice. So, so here's the thing. If you choose to do something different than what Paul says, right? If you decide that, you know what? Instead of staying single, I'm going to get married. Is Paul going to say, oh, well, now you've sinned? No, of course not. He says, this is my advice to you. If you're married, stay married. God already said that. But if you're not married, maybe because of the present distress in the world, maybe it's best not to get married. That's my best advice. That's what Paul says. That's my best advice. You ever give somebody ask you for advice and you tell them the best that you can come up with? You're not mad at them if they do something different. People ask me all the time because I'm a pastor. Hey, do you think I should do this or do you think I should do that? I'll think about it. I'll weigh it and I'll give them what my best advice is. If they go do the other thing, it's not like they sinned. Okay, and that's what Paul's saying. He's like, I, I think probably it's best if you're not married, don't get married. Right? Why? Because things can get hard. And so he gives this advice to unmarried people, starting in verse 28. Philip, go ahead. He says, first things first, consider the present circumstances before you get married. It's like, if you want to get married, that's okay. But, but consider this. He says, um, if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I want to spare you that. You could also amen there, but it would get awkward. But you know this is true. If you get married, there will be trouble. Marriage is difficult. Marriage is difficult. On top of that difficulty, he says, um, this is what I mean. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Those who mourn as though they are not mourning. Those who rejoice as though they're not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Here's Paul's fancy way of saying, look, we are at the end. We are in what we would think of as the end times. Now, it was the end times 2,000 years ago. It's the end times now. All this means is that we are living in the age of persecution for Christians. Here, in this culture, we have been able to avoid that. Historically, throughout every other culture, they have had to deal with it significantly. Right? So Paul says, perhaps, right, 
it would be easier for you to be unmarried because the circumstances of the world are really difficult. It's not just about how you feel. It's about the place that you find yourself in. So you need to think that through. Is all he's saying is, if you, if you marry, you haven't sinned. But think this through. The world is a weird place to be right now. It's really hard. Maybe it's not the best time to be married. He keeps going in, in, in verse 32. He says, you have to face the responsibilities honestly too. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. And the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul says, I'm not trying to tell you not to get married. I'm not trying to tell you that you can't do it. He says, but what I am trying to tell you is that you must follow the Lord. And when you're married, it can be more difficult to follow God wherever he leads. I'll give you an easy example. I thought for a second, like it was just a second, I thought, you know what? I might want to be a missionary. This is a long time ago, right? I was, this is like, you know, 15 years ago. I thought I might want to be a missionary. I had been in Africa for a little while, not, not a long time, just like, you know, two, three weeks. And, and I thought that was a lot of fun. And, and we were staying there with some permanent missionaries that had been there for decades raised a family there. And I, you know, I thought, man, maybe, maybe God wants me to do this. Well, in having a conversation with Carrie, um, it became very clear that hey, God wasn't putting that on her. So that just went away. There was no way even to pursue that, right? Because I had chosen to be married to Carrie. And so I wasn't free to just go do whatever I felt like I needed to do, right? Paul says, I'm not trying to put restrictions on you. Get married if you want to get married, but consider this. You're going to want to follow God. And sometimes when you're married, it's not quite that simple. When I went to, when I went to school to become a pastor, right, that process was a whole lot slower than I wanted it to be. It took me several years of conversation with Carrie and time with Carrie and prayer with Carrie before she said, you know what? Yep. Okay. Go back to school. And then after school, it took several more years before we were in a position where, where God had moved in her heart enough to say, okay, now it's time for us to look. If I had been unconnected, it would have happened much faster. Now, I didn't do poorly being married. Paul says, do what you want. And I wanted to be married. He says, but just know that it gets more complicated. So you got to be honest about the responsibilities that come with marriage. Oh, something bad happened there. There we go. Um, the other thing is this, each situation is unique. He continues, he says, if anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly towards his, his promised one, his betrothed, if his passions are strong and he sincerely desires it to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. They're fine. Get married, right? But whoever is firmly established in his heart that, that he doesn't need to be married, that he's content being single, 
He's determined in his heart to keep uh, from being married, then he also does well. So then who marries his beloved does well, and he who refrains from marriage does even better. Again, Paul's saying, I'm not giving you restrictions. I'm just saying, man, really think this through. Really think it through. The present circumstances are not awesome. And it can be hard to be married when, when the circumstances are not awesome. On top of that, be honest about what's at stake. And you need to be devoted to God whether you're married or not. And that gets harder when you're married. And he says each circumstance is unique. You've got to make your own decision here. If you think that in all of that you want to get married, then get married. If you think in all of that that you don't, then don't. And he finishes up with these last couple of verses saying this. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. He's like, and remember this last thing, Judah, go ahead. Remember this last thing. Your marriage is for life. Plain and simple. Your marriage is permanent. It is for life. He he says it this way. "A, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. A a wife is is bound to her husband as long as he lives. A a husband is bound to his wife as long as she lives. It's permanent. Do not marry without the understanding that marriage is permanent. You may not always feel like you want to be married. But when you're married, you are. It's permanent. It says, but if her husband dies, she becomes a widower, she's free to be married again if she wishes. She's free to remarry. As long as it's a Christian, he says this, only in the Lord. She's free to remarry only in the Lord, another Christian. But Paul finishes again the same thought. In my judgment, you know, she might be happier if she remains as she is. Because we can't enter into marriage lightly. All right, man, that's a lot of information. It was a lot to go through. There's just one last slide, Philip. Um, I said Philip, I meant Judah. Judah, it's you, and I know it, and I respect you, and I appreciate you. Some of you are married, and you are where you are, and I would remind you that marriage is permanent. I would say that there is grace and mercy for divorce, but it is very clearly not God's design. I would say with all sincerity that that. If you have found yourself in a divorce, that it would be helpful to take stock of where you're at, right? Did that divorce happen because of someone's abandonment or their um, sexual unfaithfulness? And if that's the case, then after healing, I can move forward. If that's not the case, if it was what we like to call a no-fault divorce— then I might not be free to just move forward in another marriage. I might be free um, to reconcile or stay single. If you're married and it's tough, of course it is. It's part of what Paul was telling us. Man, of course it's tough. It was tough back then, it's tough now. Get help. Dig in. Do the work. Get some counseling. Come talk to me. I'll make you a referral, whatever. But, but, but we don't quit just because it's hard. Now, if you're single, ask yourself these questions. Do I have the gift of singleness? Do, 
Am I good being single? Because maybe God wants to use my life as a single person to do something I couldn't do if I were married. If I do want to get married, am I marrying a believer? Because if he's not a believer, if she's not a believer, then I got no reason to get married. I can't, I can't risk my foundation. Are the circumstances right? Will getting married, what I, will, it, will it impact what I feel like God has called me to do as a Christian? And am I prepared for it to last forever? These are questions we have to ask ourselves. Listen, Paul unpacked a ton of information in this. And so I get that this was a little more luxury than normal, but, but it was necessary for us to get through it. Um, I want to pray for us, and I just want to invite you in this. If you have questions, if there's things that I, I ran through too quickly or some things that you're not quite sure how to process, or maybe, maybe you're trying to figure out what it means uh, moving forward for you in whatever context, either as, as a single person, as a divorced person, as a widowed person, as uh, what whatever. Let's, let's have a conversation. Let's, let's go ahead and dig into that. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your word and the ability that we have to understand it. Father, we know that the teachings in it sometimes are difficult to process and difficult to understand, but ultimately we know that they are for our good. God, that, that you are for us, that you are good and faithful and true. And so we ask you to help us understand this teaching and, and to live accordingly. Father, I pray for those that are struggling with the decisions to be single or to stay married or whether they should enter into a new relationship. God, I pray that you will give them good, biblical, godly wisdom. That you will put people around them that will speak truth to their hearts. And that God, ultimately, you would have your way in their lives. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for who you are. And we thank you for everything that you do and all the blessings that you pour out. We thank you most of all for Jesus Christ. We love you. Amen.